This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. This year has almost been apocalyptic for the climate. Hurricane Laura bearing down on the Gulf Coast, triggering a dangerous storm surge forecasters are describing as unsurvivable. Overnight, multiple wildfires exploding in Southern California. By 85 mile per hour wind gusts earlier today uh, in Chicago. Holy cow. Even as we speak, Hurricane Iota is ripping apart Nicaragua and is being called the most powerful storm ever recorded this late in the season. But while the world started to really focus on the environment, the Trump administration put 50 years of sustainable policy in reverse. So how does the Biden administration put things back on track? Karen Weigert is Reset Sustainability contributor. She's also executive vice president at Slipstream, a clean energy innovation nonprofit. She also served as the chief sustainability officer for the city of Chicago. Karen, welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right. So we've heard a lot about climate in the campaign. How can that translate into a start of a new administration? We have heard a lot about climate. And we have an incoming president with the largest vision and the biggest plans we have ever seen coming in. But they have to be implemented to live up to the ambitions that are there. So what can he do? He's coming in with four priorities. Pandemic economy, climate change, and racial equity. And linking those things together is how his motto Mm. of Build Back Better happens. But that really means embedding climate and sustainability across the entire federal government. So you're starting to see names of potential appointees. You've got names on the transition team, but it's about integrating sustainability, not just in the EPA, not just in energy, in transportation, at state, throughout the work of the federal government. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and that, that really is, when you think about it, a, a sh- huge shift. Because it used to be, if you had a background in climate, you were in the EPA. And that was it. And, and the idea now we're seeing that for us to take on climate change, it's got to go beyond that. Yeah, it's really that question of how do you fully integrate the solutions. And we're talking about an economy that must be rebuilt. And we're talking about questions of justice throughout our community, globally as well as locally, that have to be addressed. And so this is where it will get interesting as the new administration starts to come in and thinking about what are those things that the administration can do on day one. One very high profile public one is to rejoin the Paris Accord, Mm -hmm. to commit the United States again to being a part of the global community. That requires both work diplomatically and President-elect Biden has been mentioning climate in all of his discussions with world leaders to date as well as work in the U.S., where we right now don't have a climate commitment, and we would need one if we're truly going to not just rejoin Paris, but lead again. That's Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weiger. Let's bring in another voice on this newly reelected representative from the 6th District, Sean Kasten. Congressman Kasten, welcome back to Reset. Hey, Justin. Nice to, nice to hear you. Yeah, so you've got a science background. Why is climate and clean energy important to you? Um, it's the existential risk we face as a species. I think the most important thing for people to understand is that what is scientifically necessary 
vastly exceeds what anybody thinks of as being politically possible. And our grandchildren don't really care about the rules of the filibuster. They care that we leave them a habitable planet. And as long as we focus on what's scientifically necessary, we've got something to be proud of. But we have to always keep our eye on that, that objective. Karen just mentioned, and it was something that, uh, that really kind of stuck out to me, was this idea of how you approach uh, the environment and climate change when you're setting up your cabinet, when you're setting up your new administration, that it has to be a different thought process than, than administrations in the past. Do you agree with that, the idea that, that you're going to need to see people who have uh, are forward thinking on the environment in places they haven't been before? So without question, and I'm delighted to hear Biden talking about a whole government approach, but I do want to clarify, I am less concerned with who the people are and more with how they organize the White House. You can't talk about climate policy without talking about energy policy. Mm-hmm. And if your top priority is education, it matters who you put at the head of the Department of Education. If your top priority is agriculture, it matters who you put in the agriculture department. If your top priority is energy, is it EPA? Is it the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission? Is it DOE? And we have never had a single clearinghouse for energy policy. And as a result, there's no desk where the buck stops and the buck doesn't stop. And so, you know, in the conversations I've been having with the the folks on the transition team, the point that I've been making over and over again is you have an amazing power to do things from the White House, but you have to put somebody in charge of energy policy and not just count on those various departments to figure it out amongst themselves. We saw in this last administration, the Trump administration, I think it was Rick Perry and, and others who, who had uh, compromised uh, backgrounds when it came to uh, energy policy or working for coal or for oil companies. Is that something you have to pay attention to, even on the other side, that, that it's not uh, uh, pushing an agenda forward that might be personal or self-interest uh, and more about coming together uh, around the issues of not just our country but the planet? We've got to stop talking about climate as a zero-sum fight between the climate and the economy. Everything that we do meaningfully to lower CO2 emissions lowers the cost of energy. If you put a solar panel on the roof of your house, you don't have to pay for electricity anymore. If you get an electric car, you don't have to pay for gasoline anymore. Mm -hmm. That puts more money in our pocket. It has been blocked historically. There is no sector of our economy that's more heavily subsidized than the fossil fuel industry. IMF has estimated that they are subsidized to the tune of $650 billion with a B dollars a year. So if you care about free markets, if you care about business competitiveness, if you care about making sure that Americans have more money in their pockets, you should completely embrace a massive commitment to a low-carbon future. Mm -hmm. But that transition will hurt people who benefit from the existing heavily subsidized status quo. So, yes, we need to be nervous about it as long as we stay focused on delivering people cheap, clean energy – I don't think we have to have any any guilt or concern about who might benefit in that transition because everybody wins in that scenario. And, Karen, I want to bring you back in because I know you, that you're a fan of Congressman Kasten's tradable emission allowances. What are those tactical things that can drive the economy while pulling energy out? And I'd love to ask, ask the congressman. He's recently intro- introduced an approach that looks at trading, so essentially creating a market structure, but going really specific into energy used in industry, and energy used in thermal. So, Congressman, if you wouldn't mind, please tell us a little bit more about how we can tactically bring something forward here that might, in fact, achieve these shared goals and get us on that pathway to stronger economics and reduced carbon. Uh, So I'd love to have an hour to go into the details of that (laughs) proposal, but the, the basic idea of it is to say that if we are going to use markets, which are amazingly powerful ways to solve problems, 
Um, and I am a huge fan of market-based solutions to climate change. We have to make sure that the price you pay to emit carbon is the same as the revenue you receive to reduce carbon. I mean, after all, that's how the market for shoes works, right? And most of the ideas that are out there to price carbon involve paying the government for the right to pollute, but no explicit payment for reducing. And so what we did in this Tradable, um, uh, tradable Pollution Standards Act, I'm getting the name wrong here, is to say that every source of useful thermal energy or electricity will receive an allowance to emit carbon that is tied to uh, the current levels and ramps to zero in 2040. But you get it per unit of useful energy. So you don't get you don't get 500 tons a year. You get a thousand tons per megawatt hour. And that next year it's going to be 900, and the year after that's going to be 800. And you now have a right to pollute some, but you're going to have to steadily reduce that down. And the, the big benefit it does that I would submit no other carbon bill does is it provides a direct cash payment to people who put solar panels on their house, who build wind turbines, who invest in efficiency, because those people now can say, okay, I've got to find a way to raise the investment capital to do this, and now I have a long-term source of cash flow that I can use to bring that forward. Because once those assets are built, they're always going to be more economic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it ties it together, and you know we'll be reintroducing it within moments of the, uh, the 117th Congress being sworn and see if we can push for it in the next session. Congressman Sean Kasten, representing Illinois' 6th District. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Justin. Nice to talk to you, Karen. All right. Karen, many in Congress are also working on how climate and the environment impact foreign policy. One of them, our congressman right here in Chicago, Mike Quigley, who represents Illinois' 5th District. Congressman Quigley, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. Thank you. All right. So you've served on the committees like uh, appropriations, intelligence, sustainable energy and the environment. Uh, Talk about the importance of of those committees and how they connect to this idea of sustainability. Sure. I mean, first of all, uh, I'm an appropriator uh, and I'm a a chairman, one of the 12 that uh, fund the 12 bills that really fund the government. In the final analysis, a lot of this just takes money uh, addressing climate change and doing and operating all of government in the sustainable way. You know, one of the obvious ways to do that is to say, put rules in there that are are tied to the money, that you're going to act in a more sustainable way to get these resources. But more obviously, some things just take funds. You need money to to operate super funds. Uh, You need money for public transportation and other green infrastructure. You need money for restoration programs, projects that restore wetlands. Less obvious, I think, for some folks are committees like the Intelligence Committee. Under uh, Chairman Schiff, for the first time, we held open hearings about climate change and national security. Mm-hmm. Because I think for most Americans, it's just not something that's on their mind uh, to, to follow. Climate change is a national security threat. It's a threat multiplier. Uh, and if we don't do anything about it, it's, it's jeopardizing national security and, and creating instability throughout the world. I taught environmental policy for 10 years at Loyola, and I used to tell my students there, everything's connected. (laughs) And if you're going to address these issues, you have to address them in everything you do in your life. We've been sold as the American people that it's America first, that we'll take care of ours and and don't worry about the rest of the world. But when you're talking about saving the planet, I mean, the the word the planet is in there. I mean, there has to be some reach across the aisle, if you will, to other countries to make sure that uh, carbon emissions and and other things that play a big role in our environment and sustainability are are being met. Sure. I mean, Madeleine Albright said it best, you can't lead by leaving. 
And the fact is, as corny as it sounds, when we think about communities, we say, hey, we're all connected. We all need each other. That is more true on a national and worldwide basis, especially when it comes to issues like climate change. Uh, We all need each other to act responsibly, and we cannot expect anyone else to act responsibly or act at all if we're not doing anything. I was leading a congressional delegation, one of the first of these many trips, to a national parks to talk about the impact of climate change on those parks. We were at the headwaters of the Colorado River. They're talking about how live streaming, how one degree in temperature can dramatically change how much snow there is to, to rain and how much is retained and what that means for all the states that depend on that water. And at that moment, the president it was announced they're pulling from the Paris Accord. We're only hurting ourselves. So, so much of this is an educational process to the American people to get past the myths and the lack of information that mm-hmm. exists. There's this, this idea of transformation as well, and you co-sponsored the Green New Deal, which many moderate Democrats, including President-elect Biden, have tried to keep at arm's length, at the same time praising aspects, but, but have been attacked for it. But the concept of the Green New Deal, which I always enjoyed, was the concept that we fundamentally need to change the way we approach this, uh, because we can't just keep doing the way this kind of uh, piecemeal approach to this thing, that we need to be transformative. Do you still believe in that, that we need to be transformative oh, sure. when it comes to the planet? It's called the New Deal for a reason. This country does things best when they go big, right? And we we think of massive change that took place, and it was always wildly ambitious. And here we were in the the worst depression. Uh, We put together a deal to give people hope, and it really transformed the, the, the people of the United States and the country itself. The same is true with the Manhattan Project. Same is true with the Apollo missions. You know, the trip to the moon. I was at a press conference announcing the Green New Deal. And I think when I looked down the line, there were eight of us. Uh, they all had eight different visions in their mind of what the New Deal would be. And the final analysis, it's, it is an extraordinary level of ambition, less specific legislation. You know, it includes the aspects of what we're talking about, grid modernization, sustainability uh, installed into all we do, carbon pricing and so forth. But in the final analysis, we've got to think, as you say, we've got to think big. Mm -hmm. This is the big issue, the big challenge uh, for the rest of our existence. Yeah. Mike Quigley represents Illinois' 5th District in Chicago. Congressman, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you both. All right. So, Karen, that's fascinating that in military circles, climate change and the environment isn't some controversial topic. It's not new. That's true. And it was interesting to hear Congressman Quigley remind us of this. And it hasn't been controversial actually for a long time. I think it's under President Bush, George W. Bush, that the military really identified climate change as a threat. It's essentially referred to as an accelerant of instability. And we see that from a military perspective in the areas where there are conflict that mm-hmm. can arise when you have changes in weather patterns. It can destabilize already unstable areas. So it's that accelerant instability. We also see it because our military is the first responder globally when there are huge weather events, typhoons, et cetera. The world relies on us. But then we also see it in our own bases, particularly in the Navy, when you think about areas that are located right right, on water that is increasingly rising and hit by storms. So the military is a long-term planning organization looking out for its interests and the American interests. And climate change is essentially a factor in that. But politically, we haven't talked about it that way. 
in the very recent past. So there's going to be a real resurgence here in essentially the language. But really looking at those long-term trends, the military for a while has identified this as a critical threat to our security. Yeah. Well, one of the guests that you brought to us today, Catherine Hammock, has uh, served as Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy, and Environment, appointed by President Obama back in June 2010. Secretary Hammock, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to join you. So we were just talking about the idea of sustainability and the relationship to the military. I mean, the, the military hasn't had this uh, contentious relationship with climate change. They're, they've been on top of it. You're absolutely right. And, you know, Karen phrased it well. An effective and successful military must be able to respond and sustain itself across a wide variety of both human and natural conditions. So in order to provide support to civil authorities in the U.S. in case of natural disasters, you want the military to be ready. Mm -hmm. But sustainability includes the wise management and use of natural resources and and respect for people, whether it's the uniformed military members, families, civilians, and communities in which the military operates, and the wise use of financial resources, which are really taxpayer dollars. Sustainability is embedded in training and policy and guidance, so it's really a part of all military Mm -hmm. activities and enhances the way the military does business with others. It increases operational efficiency, which in turn increases effectiveness. Right. And enhanced performance comes when you combine sustainability and resilience. Energy security comes through a combination of energy efficiency and renewable energy production as a new administration comes in and they want to develop and implement a policy that is going to change the way that we look at the, at the environment and climate change and sustainability, what can they take from the military to understand that? I mean, what can what a Biden administration look at how the military has adjusted and be able to use those same uh, ideas in how they operate the executive branch? Well, when I was in the Obama administration and working in the Army, The Army led the federal government in partnerships with the private sector for energy efficiency, obtaining over $1 billion in private sector capital, all of which was paid back out of energy savings. And additionally, I instituted a renewable energy program focused again on private sector capital investments, attracting another billion dollars, making bases more ready and resilient to meet the needs of this nation. So I think when we look at the Biden administration, we're going to see the reemergence of some of those policies that were really focused on engaging climate change at the forefront. And, mm-hmm. and certainly one of them is rejoining the Paris Agreement. Yeah, right. Catherine Hammock was Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy and Environment in the Obama administration. Secretary Hammock, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us today. Appreciate it. Certainly. Thank you very much. Well, we could talk about the military, we could talk about uh, security, we could talk about all of things, but it always comes down to the economy and the American economy. So joining us now to talk about how policy, business, and justice intersect when it comes to uh, the economy is Delmar Gillis. He's the chief operating officer at the nonprofit Elevate Energy. Delmar, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. So what what does Elevate Energy do? Elevate is an organization that ensures everyone has access to clean energy, clean water, and clean air. Uh, We have a specific focus on underserved communities and making sure they have access to the clean energy economy and the jobs that it creates. How do you make the argument that sustainability, clean energy are also going to have positive impacts on the economy? I think sometimes when we talk about clean energy, we tend to get into very partisan arguments. And 
I think there are a lot of solutions that are out there that can both create jobs while also working to ensure that the environment is saved and that we have a sustainable work environment. Um, there's a lot of really good examples out there of organizations that are focused, especially at the community level, on uh, finding and creating jobs. When you look at the clean energy economy, I think uh, uh, the state of Illinois has uh, been a national leader in coming up with solutions that can stimulate our solar economy through incentives while also ensuring underserved communities are well-positioned to take advantage of the many jobs that are created. So I I think there's a lot of paths that we can definitely look at uh, as it relates to job creation and uh, environmental justice. You know, Delmar, in in just a minute, it's it's only a minute to answer this question, but why is equity uh, and justice so important with the environment? It's really important because we really need to engage communities of color, especially black and brown communities, And one of the things I just wanted to really mention is that all of these conversations are connected. When you look at what's going on with COVID-19 right now, uh, the COVID pandemic is tied into what's going on as it relates to our environmental priorities. Part of our COVID uh, recovery can definitely be tied to growing, uh, especially in Illinois, our clean energy economy. Uh, The clean energy economy will allow us to create jobs, create opportunities, create access. It's going to help lower bills. And all of those things are needed if we're going to bounce back uh, from this COVID pandemic that's really uh, devastated communities of color. Delmar Gillis is the chief operating officer at the nonprofit Elevate Energy. Delmar, thanks for being here. Thank you. And Karen Weigert, just awesome. What a great lineup of people that you brought with us. And and I can't wait to talk more about sustainability. Appreciate you being here as well. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to dive in. There's a lot more to come. Absolutely. And that's today's Reset. Please take less than a minute to give us a rating on your podcast app. It really helps other people find us. For more great conversations like this, go to wbez.org slash reset. Go through our archive. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you right back here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.